We have already been blessed so mightily to be able to assemble and to gather on this Sunday afternoon in the way that we are. We often comment what a blessing it is, and certainly is something that we should ever keep in the forefront of our appreciation, to be mindful of it and to recognize the blessedness of the church, the glory that attaches to what it stands for, and certainly our opportunity to be a faithful member of it. Tonight, as we're going to give thought to November's edition of these controversial topics, we have tried once each month this year to reflect somewhat upon a topic that quite often is controversial in the mind of men, and yet as we have often discussed that, we have found that though men may find it controversial, the Word of God does not. The Word of God is rather direct, straightforward, and plain, even as it relates to these particular matters, and tonight's might well be somewhat of a different category, at least in regard to the following. Let me encourage you to consider uh, this next slide, which will be a gentle introduction to the topic before us this evening. The changeability of God. Does God change? How do we understand what the Bible has to say about that? About the middle of that slide, I have taken an almost embarrassingly short list. You and I are quick to appreciate many things about God. We know He's a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of truth and a God that is always right. The Word of God so often reminds us of those things that we have no question really about them. But yet sometimes the question is asked, does God change? The next slide is going to begin a discussion wherein we'll at least reflect somewhat upon that from this angle. In fact, there are a host of verses that testify rather strongly that God does not change. Let's in fact step through some of them and perhaps begin like this. Malachi 3 verse 6 may well be the strongest Old Testament passage as it touches that subject where God Himself speaking says, I change not. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty direct. When the very one whom we're discussing makes the statement, I change not. Now it's interesting that in that particular location, God was addressing features characteristic of the behavior of Israelites, specifically in relation to the children of Esau, over against the children of Jacob. But it might well be, at least in that light, God's affirmation is very straightforward. But that's not the only one. In Numbers 23, verse 19, you remember Balaam. He's the very one who had a conversation with a talking donkey at one point. And yet, on another aspect of his proclamation, even he made the declaration, God doesn't change. He is not like a man. You know, you and I sometimes change our mind. We may well choose to do something different, wherein previously we had made declaration we would do something besides that. Balaam said, God is like that. But not only Balaam and the very nature of God's declaration itself. What about that statement in James 1.17? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The first part of that verse might well be the one that consumes their attention in many instances, but what about the latter part? With God, there is no shadow of turning. There is no variation. All those verses so far seem to be an ironclad case 
for the fact that God doesn't change. There is, in fact, not even a shadow that's cast by turning. Having made mention of all of them, you might well be able to think of additional verses because there are others. But I thought that those would at least highlight in seemingly rather clear appreciation to the fact that God doesn't change. But all of that stands in direct contrast to this slide. Isn't it true there are other verses, there are other passages that indicate that God does change? In fact, would you note just a few of these in passing? At the top of that slide in Exodus 32, verse 14, the children of Israel, as you know by that point, God had given the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. And we are now some number of chapters beyond that time, and you recall that the people were dancing around a golden calf. And as you arrive at verse 14 of that chapter, you find the consideration that a comment is made in which you find that God repented of the evil that He had intended toward them. Repented of the evil? Doesn't that indicate He changed? Doesn't that indicate He changed His mind in some way, directed to what had formerly been the case? What about that next one? In First Chronicles 21, verse 15, you might recall that David had made a determination to number Israel. And that was not a wise course of action. It was not that which ought to have been done. It illustrated a lack of faith on David's part. And yet in 1 Chronicles 21.15, you might recall, the destroying angel was running afoot, if you please, bringing death to so very many. And the text says that when God saw the angel approaching Jerusalem, he repented of it and he ordered the angel to stop. Doesn't that indicate he changed his mind? Doesn't that indicate that he changed in some way? These observations so far are beginning to get very intriguing. Does God change or does he not? Look at the next one if you would. In Jeremiah 26 verse 13, this time the prophet Jeremiah with God speaking through him rather directly highlighted the fact that Judah had made a choice to move in a direction that was not faithful and it was not good. It was a way that it was encumbered with evil. And yet God said that I will repent of the evil that I had promised to do to them. Doesn't that again indicate a changeability with God? By now you're beginning to see why this is a matter of question and why it is a matter of some consideration those earlier verses which highlighted so strongly that God doesn't change, and yet these passages, as well as others, that say that He did. In Joel 2, verse number 13, in the second of the minor prophets, here again God doing the talking said through the prophet Joel, as He urged the people to rend your heart and not your garments, then I will repent of the evil which I had intended to toward you. Thus, the people were urged, in fact ordered, that they might respond to God's goodness and the offer of His mercy, and in so doing that God would return aside from the evil which He had intended toward them. It is the case, then, that in each of these instances on this slide, the pattern has been rather clear and rather repetitive. 
in every instance, there was something that God asserted would change in light of a certain circumstance concerning himself. Jonah 3 verse 10 is yet another example. This time it was the city of Nineveh, which you might recall Jonah had been told, you go and cry against it because their cry of wickedness has come up before me. Jonah was told directly, you urge upon them to repent. But this text in Jonah 3.10 is about God. Do you remember that the people did repent after Jonah preached to them? And a text says that God repented of the evil which he had intended toward them. He spared the city of Nineveh. He didn't destroy it like, like Jonah had said that he would. Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. But they repented and the destruction at that time did not happen. By now, as you close the end of that slide with me, which is it? Does God change or does He not change? And how should you and I appreciate somewhat of what is said about all of these? This next slide will take you and me first through some observations, and then we will give some thought to an explanation. It would seem to me the Word of God has something to say to help us, to encourage us and instruct us so that we are not in the dark when it comes to a question such as this one beginning at the top of that slide. May I suggest to you, it is correct to say that God does not change. He does not change in His desire. He doesn't change in His essence, His nature, the character of His deity. That never changes. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, 4, He has a desire that all men would come to a knowledge of the truth. That never changes. It doesn't matter what nation, what gender, what place, what location, what station or status in life. God wants everybody to come to the gospel. Not only that. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read there that God is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants nobody to be lost. He wants no one to, in fact, live apart from Him. And on one occasion, even the prophet Ezekiel highlighted the truth that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Isn't it true that each and every day, in fact, every moment of every day, about two people die every second? Think about how many will leave the confines of this earth by the time we close this sermon if two people around the globe die every second. And on average, worldwide, that's what it is. You gain a sense then that as one by one these individuals are slipping into the other side of eternity, many of whom are unprepared, many of whom have not made the proper choices in this life. You and I need to be reminded God's not happy that they're dying that way. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Some seemingly wish to portray God as this mean, evil tyrant who seems to enjoy punishing those. But He takes no pleasure in it. As you and I revisit that part of the slide before us, in Titus 1 verse 2, we learn that God doesn't lie. 
He cannot tell a lie. He does not deceive. He does not lead astray in that regard. I find it rather encouraging to think about Ezekiel 24, 14. And that major prophet in the text found in that position and location, God there declared, My will shall be accomplished. That somewhat reminds us of Isaiah 55, doesn't it? Where in verse 11 we read that His word will not return void. It shall accomplish that which, is, which was intended by way of it. So far, to think about God then unchanging in His essence and unchanging in His basic characteristic, it still leads me to say this. Based on those verses you and I just noted, I worded it like I did at the bottom of that slide. It is still entirely correct to say that God not only is capable of doing it, but is happy to change His mind in light of human response. In light of human reaction to Him. You might ask, what exactly does that mean? I can think of no passage any better for explaining that than the one that was read a moment ago in our hearing. Colonel read from Jeremiah 18. Would you please be turning there? We'll revisit that passage in some detail as we step through the very verses themselves. Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse number 7. I'll go ahead and transition the slide to the next one. We first will revisit the text as we read it, and then we'll make a few comments. At what instant... I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. Let's first begin by noting here was a circumstance in which God had made determination concerning a kingdom, concerning a nation. And as you note the very wording of it, to pluck it up, to pull it down, to destroy it. In other words, by virtue of their behavior and their direction, God had made decree determination that in light of it, judgment was going to be their destruction. The judgment would correspond to their doom and their ruin. One of the first things you might note is lesson number one on that slide. It is entirely possible for a nation, for a kingdom, and yea, even more broadly for an individual to so live and so conduct himself or themselves that God makes decree of judgment, of destruction. Isn't it true? You and I can think of a number of Bible examples. What about those living in Noah's day? God determined I'm going to destroy every living creature on earth that is land-dwelling, except those aboard the ark. Didn't God make a decree of judgment in light of their behavior? They lived in evil. Their thoughts were evil. They pursued evil. They rose up with both hands earnestly. They were somewhat described in the days of Micah like a briar. Micah 7 verses 3 and 4. It might well be. Then notice God had made decree, but they didn't change their mind. They continued down the pathway of doom and destruction, and the floodwaters came. But look at the next verse. We have just given some consideration to a nation, a kingdom, a person. But look at the next verse. If that nation 
against whom I have pronounced. Turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. The previous pronouncement was one of ruin and destruction, and because of, again, the deeds which they were pursuing, that is what the judgment was to be. And yet God says, if that nation will change their mind and make repentance, then I will repent of that sentence of doom and destruction. You and I are so thankful, of course, that not only does that principle apply to nations and kingdoms, but how wonderfully it applies to us. That person who you see has made direction apart from God who has literally turned his or her back on the God of heaven and chosen to deliberately live apart from Him. If that person, if that person will humble themselves and come unto the Lord, God will reverse that sentence, that pronouncement, that justice and doom that was headed in that person's direction, and they will now be welcomed in open arms and full assurance of the blessedness and mercy through the nature of the blood of Christ. You see, God's response was in light of that person's choice. That person being against God. God had pronounced by virtue of that own person's declaration the sentence of judgment. But if that person changed his or her mind, and that same is true of kingdoms and nations, and that's lesson number two on that slide. Isn't it true that God had certainly made declaration concerning some nations? We mentioned the Ninevites a moment ago in Jonah 1 verse 2. Couldn't we also add to that declaration the very people of Judah in Ezekiel 18.20 as well as Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 18. It is a reminder that our God wishes all people to be saved. But some people choose to live in such a way that they have brought the judgment of God upon them. As you complete that verse number 8 with me, may we notice it again. If that nation against whom I have pronounced, this is God pronouncing, if that nation turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. The word evil there is used in two different ways. God, of course, doesn't do evil. The evil there is in the sense of what man would perceive as destruction. What man would perceive, you see, as this total ruination. God says, I'm going to repent of that consideration of judgment, and that will not come to pass. And again, isn't that what occurred concerning the nation of Nineveh? This might be the perfect time, though, to remember that although the Ninevites did repent then and God spared them then, what happened a century and a half later? Roll forward 150 years. By this time, Jonah, of course, was long since dead. All of those who were contemporary with him had passed on as well, but now Nineveh is ripe again for judgment. She had again begun to live evil. She had begun to live in a way that was not right in the sight of God. And though a Gentile nation she was, God commissioned the prophet Nahum this time. And this time Nineveh didn't repent. And this time Nineveh was destroyed. And this time, you see, that doom and that judgment came upon it because she did not make any changes. Isn't this a lesson reminding us 
of how tender in heart we must be so that we never become so hard in conscience. With the conscience seared in the language of 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 and following, that we are past feeling. Because if we ever arrive at that point, that would indicate the sentence of God will not, then not change. What about lesson 3? Let's transition to verse number 9. And at what an instant I shall speak concerning a nation, and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. This is just the opposite. Here's a circumstance in which a nation, a kingdom, is directed in the right way. And God says, I'm going to pronounce it to be built, that it will greatly increase, that it shall become more noteworthy and grander. It says to build and to plant. You and I know there were times in the Bible, again, where circumstances like this took place. Remember the early days of Judah, how that she exploded in a way that was good because she was attuned to God. And the law of God was her bylaw. And so, verse number 10, verse number 9 is a wonderful declaration. Don't you know there was a time when God apparently felt that way toward America? Haven't you been impressed with what transpired in the middle to late 1700s and the early 1800s? It's true that this land had a lot of resources, but a band of folks came on a boat over the ocean and came to this place. And at the time, there was no bedrock of development. There was no economy to warrant the kind of thing that has come to pass. Who would ever have dreamed the nation would have become a superpower? And yet as the decades rolled by, people who felt more concerned about the things that were found in the Bible and things that were at least attuned to God, and God looked with favor upon those people. And He looked with favor upon the land of which they were a part. And we all know, of course, over the course of time what transpired. But look at verse number 10. If it... That it is the nation upon whom God had said to plant it and build it. If it do evil in my sight, if they change their mind, and if they begin to do that which is not right, and if they begin to promote evil, and if they begin to dwell in it and languish in iniquity, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. If they change their mind toward me and begin to do that which is evil, then I will change my mind with regard to that blessing I pronounced upon them. And verse number 10 closes by saying, The benefit that I had previously felt regarding them, I will remove. Isn't that a thought-provoking idea? God directly through Jeremiah had much to say not only to the people of Judah of that day, a set of words reminding them that a nation that once is against me, if they will turn to me, can you begin to see why God urged the prophets? You preach it and you preach it and you preach it, urging them to repent because if they will, then I will remove the sentence of doom and judgment. But by the same token, if that nation that is currently directing their attention toward me, if they change their mind and if they begin to do that which is wrong and evil, then... I will change my mind and bring about doom 
and bring about a sentence of judgment upon them. As you close that slide with me, aren't there many examples in the Bible about these very things taking place? We have seen examples of each one of them more than once already. As you come to this fifth observation, I know that you can make an immediate application even beyond what we have learned this evening as a reminder of how the God of heaven feels about that kind of predicament where some think that their ticket to heaven is punched at the very moment that some degree of belief or maybe even baptism has taken place. And yet you and I understand the Bible doesn't teach this. Isn't it true that at the time you're baptized, that's the commencement? It's only the beginning. That's where the Christian life gets underway. Rather, you and I are admonished to live faithfully always, to live in the conviction of serving the Lord faithfully always. We begin to see in these passages tonight that has really been an important foundation to much of what God has been saying all along. That particular nation or kingdom that is against me, if they will repent and turn unto me, then I will remove the sentence of judgment at that moment from them, and I will bless them richly. But that nation or kingdom that right now is directed the right way, but if they begin to become loose and change their mind and direct their attention elsewhere in ways of iniquity, then... I will change my mind in terms of that beneficial promise I made earlier. At this point, as you revisit Ezekiel chapter 3, isn't it true that in that chapter, these things are portrayed on a personal level? I'd like to read some of those verses in your hearing as you and I make application of these principles we've seen from Jeremiah 18 in the following way. Ezekiel chapter 3 beginning in verse number 17. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his evil way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from the wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness, and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Now, those words were a rather strong reminder to Ezekiel, weren't they? And aren't they, in principle, a powerful reminder to us? The urgency of our faithfulness in every way. As you close that particular slide with me and approach the conclusion of our lesson tonight, it's our desire to reflect at least briefly upon this question. Does God change? You know, there are those who might try to trip us up in light of a question like that. He does not change in His essence, in His nature, in the desire of His being. And that's true also of the Son and of the Spirit as well, for they too are God. But in reaction to humanity, 
his mind can be changed. There was a time that God pronounced eternal destruction on me because I was a sinner and the blood of his son had never been applied to my heart. But at the moment I obeyed the gospel, God changed his mind toward me and that declaration and sentence of eternal doom was no more. And that same thing has happened to you. God changed his mind and aren't we thankful he did? But by the same token, if that individual of faith chooses thus to change his mind and no longer live in faith, then the sentence of judgment from the God of heaven will again appear. And you and I have seen more than once how that, that happened in the character of the names of the New Testament. God doesn't change in His essence, but He can easily be swayed by virtue of what is the case concerning the choices you and I make. Doesn't this in one way remind us of the power of prayer? We petition to God fully convinced that those petitions make a difference that the very character and tenor of what God brings about can be altered by what we pray as we pray for those that are lost or as we pray for those who are ill in sickness or as we pray for worldwide affairs and as often as we pray for the government of our country that wisdom in light of the Word of God will prevail. We're convinced that those prayers make a difference. Doesn't that indicate that through God's providential efforts he can bring about that which would otherwise not have been the case. As we arrive at the conclusion of our lesson tonight, I hope we've been reminded that Jeremiah 18 explains this beautifully. How that indeed God responds to you and I. As you think about that conclusion, if you are a person tonight who's not right with the Lord, who is not right with the God of heaven, whose life is not a reflection as it ought to be, you have the opportunity to change something. And if you do, God will make a check declaration of change as well. And oh, how excited He and you will be. You realize that involves a responsive obedience to the gospel that's positive. It requires that you believe in Him as a Son of God if you're an alien sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. Repent of your sins, confess the matchlessness of His name, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have known that way of life, having lived in it for some period of time, but perhaps over the course of time, your faith is weakened. Not because God did. Not because the Bible did. Not because of anything appreciated in the, in the presentation of the Bible but that you began to allow your heart to be filled with other things. Things of the devil. Things of iniquity. Things that distracted you from the ultimate truth and veracity of the Word of God. You know, you could make another change in mind. You made one it happened to be in a bad way. You could make a good one and come back to the right way. And tonight, this group of people would rejoice and celebrate and encourage you. May I say that What's required of you is to repent, to again make a change of mind. And if you'll do that, God will again make a change in light of the declaration He pronounces to you. You could leave this place tonight celebrating again a faithfulness unto the Lord. If we could help you tonight, won't you repent of those errors? Won't you repent of them and make confession of them? 
and invite us to pray, we'd be happy to do it. A song of encouragement has been selected, and if at this moment we could offer some direct assistance, we'd love to do it while together we stand and while we sing.